Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. A few months ago, I received a voicemail from 67-year-old Scott Schaefer. His story and experience struck such a chord with me that I reached out to him to see if he'd be interested in sharing more with the listeners of the podcast. What resulted was this episode, and one of the most incredible interviews I've done to date. With the help of a supportive and well-informed psychotherapist, Scott realized that he identified heavily with the traits of borderline personality disorder. As a child, He endured severe physical and emotional abuse at the hands of his father and struggled to reconcile his mother's inability to protect him and his siblings. Through it all, he was able to nurture a decades-long healthy relationship with his wife and stop the cycle of abuse by parenting his beautiful daughter. Years ago, Scott found the courage to leave a cushy corporate job and pursue his passion. He and his wife now run a thriving business that specializes in healing aggression, separation anxiety, and other behavioral issues in dogs who, to many, might seem like lost causes. Their reputation for working magic and considering the entire family system when working with animals and their owners means they now have a months-long waiting list to work with them. Scott is living proof that anyone can heal and change. Regardless of your age, sexuality, or gender, Scott's story will inspire anyone who struggles with generational family trauma, emotion dysregulation, validation addiction, self-confidence issues, and a longing to find a solid sense of identity, meaning, and purpose in life. In this interview, we get into it. It's a longer one, but it is chock full of an incredible amount of value. I want to tell you a little bit about some of the topics covered and questions answered in this episode. We start off discussing how Scott realized he needed help by recognizing that everything in his life felt like a conscious effort. We discuss the empowerment that comes with having concrete terms to describe hard-to-explain patterns of behavior, how splitting or black and white or -or all-or-nothing thinking in BPD can harm our relationships with ourselves and the people we love. We also discuss validation addiction and how we can stop being addicted to the approval of others and letting it drive our lives and also worsen many of our symptoms. We talk about the role of childhood trauma and abuse and how these two factors play into the early development of BPD symptoms and traits. We also move into discussing how highly sensitive children in toxic and dysfunctional family systems 
are often canaries in the coal mine, and we go into discussing what that phrase means. We also talk about a topic that I am asked all the time. I get voicemails and emails. How, as someone who identifies with BPD traits, can we be a parent? Scott is living proof that we don't have to completely do away with the idea of being a parent. It's not true that we will necessarily pass on this quote-unquote disease to our children. It is possible to heal and become an incredible parent even if you identify with the traits and symptoms of BPD. And Scott shares some incredible parenting skills for those of you who identify with traits of borderline personality disorder. We discuss how hurt people hurt people, how generational trauma and abuse play out in family systems, and how Scott broke the cycle in his own family. This conversation that you'll hear is the first time Scott and I ever spoke, but I felt an immediate connection with him. There were tears shared, we both cried, we even stayed on for almost an hour after this interview. I know that hearing from Scott will be so healing for many of you, and I hope you get as much as I did from this conversation. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my interview with the lovely, heartfelt, and incredible and inspiring Scott Schaefer. My name is Scott Schaefer and I live in Dallas, Texas. And what I do for a full-time job is something that's a little bit unusual. I'm in the dog training business, but not really. My, uh, my wife and I have a business that we specialize in dogs that have really significant behavior issues. And those would be categorized in uh, anxiety, fear, aggression, and phobia. So some really difficult, very difficult cases, separation, anxiety, compulsive disorders, things like that. Things you don't see very often in most dogs, but are really problematic. But we specialize in those. I have all the certifications for doing that. And it's been a great business. And what's, uh, what's interesting about this and who could plan their life is a lot of this, uh, what I've been through in my life and, and you know, the, the good, bad and the ugly, but kind of the bad and the ugly, I can really use in helping the dogs and, and more importantly, helping the families. So I really kind of understand what they're going through in ways that uh, they are surprised to know. And so it's been a great journey. I would have never expected to be on this. If you just said this 30 years ago, this is what you're going to be doing, Scott. I said, you're nuts. And it's been very successful. We have a big waiting list and uh, it's just been great. So that's basically who I am. That's fascinating. And Scott, I think that I'd love for you to talk to the listeners. You started off as a podcast listener, and that's how um, I came to interview you. You sent me a voicemail a while back, and I played it on the podcast. And I was so compelled by your story that I wanted to reach out to you and interview you. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about why you became a podcast listener? Yeah, that that's easy. And so just to, I think it's important for me to tell you a little bit more about myself. And, and that is what I'm, I'm a man. Okay. So, so that's how <laughs> I usually, don't hear, yeah, don't hear a lot of men, you know, on the podcast. 
But also another interesting thing, I think, for your viewers, I'm 67 years old. So I'm, I'm definitely one of the older guys, uh, people that, that probably listen to your podcast. And I went, all my life, I knew, if I can just kind of summarize this, all my life, all my life I knew something was wrong. Uh, I knew something was wrong. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not stupid. I could look around and see, this just isn't working for me like for other people. And it consistently is not working for me for many years, you know, 60 years or so. And I went to lots of therapists. I've been to read all the books and, and I'm just in this journey trying to figure this out, trying to figure this out. And about two years ago, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I was thinking of suicide, but really the frustrating level, the frustration level really got substantial. It was pretty bad. And so I did my research and found another psychologist, Dr. Gornto here in the, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and went to him. And it was only maybe after six months, and he, <laughs> here I'm getting emotional, this was a pivotal, a pivotal moment in my life. Yeah. Things got real quiet in the session and he just looked at me. He's wonderful, by the way. I just, oh, I just love him. He just got real quiet. He just looked at me in my eyes and he said, Scott, are you familiar at all with um, borderline personality disorder? And I said, I've heard of it, but I don't know it, know about it. And he said, you don't have it, but you have a lot of the symptoms or attributes associated with it. So I'm not saying that you have this, mm. but there's, there's, there's kind of this uh, things I'm hearing from you and I've heard from you over the last six months. Let me think that's what's going on. I really want to explore that a little bit. And right there was a real pivotal moment for me. And so being, being somebody with the attributes of BPD, of course, I dove headlong into it and had researched everything. Yep. <laughs> and you did and your homework. And I found your podcast. And what's cool about your podcast is no one suggested it to me. I found it on my own. And I was I was traveling between cities and I put on the first episode, the very first episode. Oh my gosh. The one that stood out and I go, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Splitting. I go, finally, I get this because I know I was doing that. In fact, when I first went to the psychologist, I said, I, I'm this, I either hate someone or I love someone. And it's really this, and it flip flaps, flip flops back and forth. And, and all of a sudden it started to make sense. I just almost came out of my seat when I was listening to your first podcast. And I thought, okay. And so I, so I listened to the podcast and then I listened to like five hours of podcast unending because I finally knew, now listen to me, Molly, I knew I found the key. Here it is. Yes. And for me, and I think for a lot of people with BPD symptoms, the knowledge, the, the intellectual awareness is 50% of the journey. You, you've got to be aware that, okay, 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 I get this. And it's been a journey then for the last year and a half or so with you, I've listened to every single episode. You're right on. I, I just, every time I listen to you, it validates two things. It validates that, yep, you know what you're talking about. And yep, that's me. And <laughs> it's been so helpful. In fact, a lot of times this is kind of funny. 
Dr. Gordon was great. But there's been a couple times, I'm being honest with you, there's been a couple times where he'll be telling me something. I go, no, 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 Molly says this. <laughs> it is really funny. And he's really cool about that. He goes, well, you know what? I don't have this, so I'm going to rely on you to teach me about this. So, I, you know, I have an academic knowledge of this and all, but I'm open to that. Yeah, tell me more about that. So what an amazing see, provider yeah. you found yourself yes. with. Yes. He sounds fantastic. He's he not triggered. He's just like, no. sure, I'm curious. I'm open. What an amazing no. person. You're right. So that's wow. my journey. That's my journey with you. Ah, well, thank you, Scott. I'm really honored. And, you know, I've had lots of professionals reach out to me saying that they've been recommended my podcast by their patients or they've found it and they're sharing it with other patients. And I think that if we can somehow marry, you know, the academic understanding with the lived experience piece, and I think the spirituality piece, I think we'll find something in the middle of all of that where we can really start healing because healing also looks different for everyone. Yes. Something that you, sh- you shared that I really loved that he said to you was that, I don't think you have this, but I think that you could probably relate to some of these yes. traits, right? And I love that because even Dr. Fox, who we love on this podcast, he says, you know, I don't tell people they have BPD because it's not part of you. And that's something I really like from narrative therapy is that, you know, separating yourself. It's not my depression is I'm experiencing some depression, right? Like it's, it's outside of me and BPD is a very helpful map but it is not necessarily who you are. And I really love that. And I'd, I'd love to ask you, you know, you mentioned that you had this very low point where you could just get, you weren't necessarily suicidal or wanting to end your life, but you were like, I can't take this anymore. Can you tell me a little bit about what your life looked like at that point and what, what was happening inside your mind or manifesting in your life that made you feel like I can't take it anymore? Okay, well, I, I wasn't I wasn't prepared for the hard questions, but it's a good one. Usually, <laughs> and the also hard feel questions, free only answer no, what you're comfortable. I'm with, fine. <laughs> I'm fine. The hard questions are almost always the good questions that need to yeah. be answered, and that's yeah. why. So, I, if I just think back on on two years ago, it was almost, and this sounds a little, I don't know, this is a nebulous. Mm-hmm. But there was an inner storm. I just was, nothing felt right. Nothing, nothing was congruent. Nothing synced up. Everything, here, here's probably the biggest attribute. Everything was a conscious effort. Mm. I had to really work to look normal. It looked normal, what I thought looked normal to others and what, what felt normal to me. I had to really work all the time to do that. And I can tell you, Molly, it was exhausting it was exhausting and I thought I don't know what's going on I I don't know but I know I'm smart enough to know this isn't right and I need some help and that was probably the hardest point for me which is true for so many situations like this is was this phrase these three words I needed help that's Mm -hmm. hard yeah and 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 for men and I'm being, I'm generalizing here. I know this, but we're not very good at that. Molly, we're really bad at that. That whole joke about men never ask for directions. Yeah. There's a reason why that's funny. Cause it's true. 
We we like we've been we've been taught to be where we have to be self-reliant. You don't ever ask for anybody, you take care of it yourself. And I was willing to finally say, I I need help with this. I'm not fit, I am not figuring this out. And after 65 years at that time, I knew I wasn't gonna. I was not going to figure this out. I've mm. been trying for 65 years to find an answer. And I had done my work, by the way. I had seen psychologists. I had read everything I could. Um, I believe in God. And I've done all those things, but it wasn't making progress. Mm. And um, yeah, so that's that's what brought me to that point. You know, I think that we don't talk enough about I mean, we don't talk enough about suicide and self-harm at all, you know, which is fair enough, but I do think it gets talked about more than just like this, what I call the, I am the problem moment or, or the, or the, okay, this is not working moment because psychological suffering can build to a point where you're functioning in daily life, but it's like you collapse at the end of the day saying like, it shouldn't be this hard, you know, just to like exist. And that hurts so much, but it hurts in a way that you can't really describe to anyone. And so then you start, you know, lashing out at people or, you know, getting sick all the time, even, you know, and at least that's how it was for me. And I heard you say the phrase, you know, everything was a conscious effort. You know, what can you talk a little bit more about what that felt like? The probably the one, the way that it just that's a great question. The way that it manifested for me was in social conversation. Now I'm I'm very comfortable. I don't have any kind of social anxiety. I, I'm very comfortable talking to people. That's not a problem. Even speaking to groups, that's not a problem. However, I was so obsessed, kind of obsessed with the perception that I was giving people that I just really overthought everything all the time, every word that came out of my mouth. And then if I said something that I, I would say a sentence that I think, Oh, I wonder if that, what if that might've been the least bit offensive. Then I would start ruminating in my mind for the rest of the conversation. So it impaired my ability to have a conversation while I'm thinking about what kind of damage control I needed to do. And, and then on top of that, if my wife was with me, Afterwards, I would say, okay, how did I do? Well, did, I, did that look okay? And did, do you think that would have been offensive? And she's she's like rolling her eyes going, oh my God, what? You know, we've been married <laughs> for 42 years and I've, and I've been doing this for for all these all these years. And, and it was the realization um, through counseling a lot of work that I realized just the genesis for this was just a profound amount of shaming that I went through as a child that you are de- defective, you are defective, you are defective. In fact, uh, that was kind of a, a theme in my childhood. It, and for my brothers too, was to constantly be told in these words, you're defective, you're worthless, you're defective, you're broken, but you're worthless was all the time. So you, you take that and that's hardwired into you. And, um, that was really something that was just exhausting. And I've really gotten a lot of relief from that um, in mm-hmm. counseling. And, if, you know, if you want me to, I can tell you how that's manifested. But that's what really kind of really pushed me. Wow. Well, I want to ask you about your relationship, but I think that it's really important 
because you have a successful business now. It's like you found help. It's not, I'm sure your life isn't perfect. Nobody's is, but it sounds like you are on your path. You found your way. And it's, there are some people listening right now that are in the part where they haven't even taken that first step. And it just feels so impossible. And I'd love to ask you a little bit more about like young Scott, you know, you were talking about, you said that you heard these horrible things from what I think you said was your brother. And so did you say it was your brother or your father that had said you were worthless? Your father. father. Okay. I was like, Whoa, harsh sibling words. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what it was like for you growing up at home? Yeah, that was, that was, <laughs> yeah, uh, Dr. Gorenstein and I have spent a lot of time on that, as you I can bet. imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was super difficult. And I have to tell you, and I think some of your listeners may even relate to this. When you said young Scott or little Scott, just when you say those words, it just strikes my soul. Yeah. Oh, I can tell you understand. It just strikes, just those words. Why? Because I feel so sorry for that little boy. I just I feel he was just this little kid. He was totally unequipped, a totally normally normal, perfect child. And it was just told over and over how defective and worthless they were. And just trying to understand. I just feel so sorry for that kid. Yeah. I, I really do. But I really think when when I think back, I think this is probably a theme too, but I I look back on my father and I think he had some of the attributes of borderline personality disorder. Now, I don't want to go back and diagnose that, but the more I learn about me, the more I think, oh my gosh, I think he had every single attribute of this in spades. And, And crazy enough, I've been gathering some information over the years about his father, and I think it was the same way. And I just, works. it's just when I hear the stories about his childhood and I, and I think about what happened in my childhood and, and including his father, it's just this replayed thing. And, and yeah, it's just, it's just really hard. So, so in my childhood, there is tremendous, uh, physical abuse. He was really big on, on whipping and spanking and all this. And he made rituals out of it. Like he would, uh, many times I had two other brothers, he would have a strip down and he would beat us all three naked. And he had this belt that he used. I'm just giving you some examples here. Yeah. He called it the black belt. And it was this weather stripping, this real wide piece of rubber, rubber weather stripping. And he, I can tell now when I look back on it, he enjoyed it. And why? Because he was so angry. It was a way for him to vent. And what a sad way to do that. But that was a big thing. And he was huge on name calling. Everyone had names. I don't even really want to talk about him now, to be honest with you. He had this terrible derogatory names that he kept. Until we were in our teenage years, he just wouldn't let go of it. He was terrible to my mother. He just was not a very nice person. And one thing that... that Dr. Gorntel has done for me in counseling that was so fantastic. So fantastic. He goes, Scott, that was your biological father. I go, bingo. That was your biological father. That's not your father. 
Your father was not a dad or a father. He was your biological father, almost as if you had been artificially inseminated. And I thought, bingo, bingo, bingo. Isn't that great? Wow. Yes, because at the end of the day, we are our own parent, right? It's like this just happens to be the environment you were in. And it says nothing about who you are. And hearing you share what you shared just now, I thought of the phrase, you know, hurt people, hurt people. Mm. Yes. The first time I heard that, I thought, oh, yeah, that is a truth, a truth, a truth. Yes. Victims become people who create more victims very often. And when I think about my childhood, one of the things that was unique about me amongst the three boys in our family, I had two other brothers. Mm. was I was really, and almost to this day, in the canary in the coal mine. I was the one at a young kid's going, this isn't right. My father's terrible person. What? This isn't right. And I said that really until his death. And uh, yeah, I was really the canary. And, and for the Funny and sad thing about that is I really suffered because of that. Like, you're the only one that's not going along with this. Everyone else is on board. Mom's on board. Two brothers are on board. You're not on board. See, that even shows you how defective you are. No one else is having a problem with this. And, of course, now, and as I'm older, I look back, it was, it was terrible. And as I found out, it's much worse than I really even thought about. It's like, this is, was bad. There is really bad stuff going on in our in our household. And I mean, just bad. Scott, can you explain to people that don't know what canary in a coal mine means? Yes, that's a that's 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 kind of you know <laughs> I'm six. I'm over here said, nodding in agreement. Yeah, yeah, I, know I, know, I know no, I know exactly what this means, and I'd actually love to dive into this more, but I'd love hear you to hear describe it to the listeners because sure. it is, it's like an older saying, you know, not yes, a lot of people don't know it. And since yeah. I'm old, you know, oh, I, have to, so I know this. So canary in the coal mine is based from the old coal mining practices back 100 years ago, where there were toxic gases that would accumulate and would kill the miners hundreds and hundreds of feet below ground. It was very dangerous. Well, they learned, and I, I don't really know how, how true this is, but the, the story goes that they would take canary, the bird, down in the coal mine with them. And the canary would, would show signs of this, this toxic gas first. The canary would die. And they'd go, uh-oh, canaries did. Get out. And so it's the, first, it's the first notification that something is wrong. And so, so we use it today for that reason. So what I love so much about that, Scott, is that I've talked about this before. And it's so interesting. Our experiences are very similar. But what I find so fascinating is you and my dad are so similar because my dad grew up, I mean, Southern father, right? Like deeply racist, really poor Southern uh, father. And my dad and he, we, they were so poor that my grandfather drank like mouthwash and like cologne to get drunk if he didn't have anything on hand, you know, and he would, I'll put a trigger warning on this episode, but I think people know the deal by now with the back from the borderline podcast, but you know, he, he murdered my dad's dog. He beat him nearly almost to death, you know, like horrible, horrible things and said 
to my dad was a, a, a bigger boy growing up and he just eviscerated. My dad said that the mental abuse was he would rather deal with a beating 10 times over oh, than the yes. mental abuse. Yes. And this grew up, right? It's so interesting because my dad was the you, but then I got, my dad never, never put his hands on us. You know what I mean? Um, because he knew he didn't want to be like his dad, but what he couldn't quite shake in his, you know, younger years was the anger, was the emotional abuse, was the, if, if you don't get with the program, then you're the problem. And I was, my sister was a more passive one. My mom even told me growing up, you know, why do you always have to have the last word? Can't you just, when your dad, when you need to understand that your dad's anger is like the ocean. If you just go limp and you float, it will pass over you. But if you fight it, it's going to be worse. So just, you know, that's the message. And I'm reiterating, you know, my mom and dad and I have had some, I'm so blessed to be able to have had some really healing conversations with my parents. My dad even admitted, Scott, that he thinks that he probably, he relates to the symptoms of BPD. He openly even admits it now and he's expressed deep regret for it. And ironically, I had more internalized anger for my mom, even than my dad, because I thought you're supposed to protect me, you know? Yeah. I just did a reference there. Oh, this is about you. So yes. Uh, well, please. I can I can relate to what you're saying. I guess a couple of comments. One is that thing about, oh, just go along, just go along. And I really don't like that. Because what it what it says is my problems are really your problems to fix. So I get to be me, but you don't get to do anything about it. No, no, no. No, dad, those are your problems. Don't project them on us. Don't make that our problem to fix. How, what could be more profoundly selfish and self-centered than that? Let's talk about mother for a second. I can absolutely relate to what you're saying about mom. What the hell? What? Do something here because you're the only person in my life. And now this kind of relates back to me being a little bit older Think about this. I grew up in the 60s. We didn't have child protective services. There was nothing around. Okay. So she was literally the only person that could have helped us. And and she didn't. And, you know, you want to say she felt weak and she could. Yeah, but but there's a point where you have to say, I don't care if I'm going to be living on the street. I'm not going to let my children go through this. And I had a really interesting thing. <laughs> so I pretend, and by the way, for me, I don't want to speak for everybody else, but for me, I did a lot of pretending about my childhood. I pretended it wasn't as bad as it was. And I pretended my mother could have protected me, but she wasn't able to and things like that. And I've, I've disabused myself of that as I get older. And that's, and that's necessary for healing. You have to see it as it was, not as how you wished it would have been. But probably... I don't know, when I was in my early 40s, so I'm all grown up, I have a child, I'm married, all this. I was out to dinner with my mother and a large group of people. My mother just happened to be sitting next to me. Keep in mind, I was in my early 40s. And so my mother was sitting next to me. One, We're just chatting. It was a large group. One thing led to the next. She and I were just chatting and we start talking about the childhood a little bit and she looks at me and she says these words. She goes, 
I think I, I wish I would have done more to protect you boys when you were little. Mm. I wish I would have done more to protect you boys when you were little. Now, why you think, well, that's a nice sentiment, but let me tell you why that was so devastating to me and actually healing in a way. It was devastating because I realized in that one second, I realized that she knew that she was aware that we were being abused and she consciously chose not to do anything. And so that really hurts that. And of course, what did I do? I say, and I'm proud of myself for this now. I I wish in a way I would have said, yeah, that'd have been great, Bob. But instead I said, I was mature enough. I go, I'm in my early forties. She's in her seventies. I said, mom, but I kind of answered in a way I was really pleased with. I said, mom, we all turned out pretty okay. Mm -hmm. So what I said was, yeah, that happened, but somehow we, we all pretty much managed through it. Of course, that really wasn't the truth either, really. But I was sparing of her. She was in her 70s. But it was devastating to hear that she was aware of that. But at the same time, it was healing because it helped me formulate that this is what really happened. Get real, Scott. This is what really happened to you. Start wow. to move. Yeah, it was it hard. Almost, it almost made me want to cry, right? Because sometimes Sad. like... The hardest things to hear, it's like they say, like, you know, the the truth, like, burns things clean. It's like when you clean out yeah. a wound, when you clean out a wound, right? Like, sometimes they have to cauterize it. And that's like, can you imagine, like, putting flames to your body? It's very counterintuitive, right? But ironically, sometimes it's the only thing that can burn away the 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 infection. And hearing that from your mom, it's almost just like... I know that feeling too. And my mom, I had a conversation with my mom, even just, uh, I went to visit my sister in London a couple of months ago and I had a blow up at my mom and I know she'd be, I mean, I'm sure she'd be okay with me sharing this because it's just, it's real, you know, but I got so angry at her and I just kind of like screamed at her and just said like, you know, all those things, like, I'm still so angry at you. Cause she even says like, we kind of admitted like to each other. I was like, I feel like you don't want to be around me. And she's like, well, I feel like you don't want to be around me. Like, I feel like you hate, like you don't even act like you want to, like you're avoiding my eye contact. Like, seems like you don't even want to be around me. And I said, you know, like I admitted to her that I was still mad. You know, like I said, I can get past the stuff with dad because my dad would come into my room sometimes after a blow up crying and saying like, I am so sorry. Like, I'm, I don't want to be like this. You didn't deserve that. And it kind of set me up for future abusive relationships with men. Right. Cause I found myself with men like that who would like scream at me, we'd scream at each other. And then they would say, I'm so sorry. And I would say, so it's like how we re, you know, we reenact these patterns. And I said to my mom, you know, at least I got this, like, I'm sorry from dad, but for you, I just got like that. You were just so where like I wanted the mama bear, you know, like, where is the mama bear? Like, why didn't what, like thinking about even someone hurting my dog? Like I like basically beat the shit out of a pit bull that tried to attack my dog once. Right. Because I was like, no, you will not touch my animal. And so I'm not a mom yet, but I know that like, if, if anyone tried to make my child feel unsafe, it would bring out like a violent energy in me to shield my child from that. And I was angry, you know, and I told my mom, I don't know why it's actually not fair to you that I'm more, more angry at you than dad. And I don't know how I can explain that to you, but I'm so angry. And me and my mom like hugged, uh, for a long time after that. And I just cried to her and it was, uh, 
it was really beautiful, you know, but again, like you said, like it was pain at the same time. It was, it was, it was very painful. And if I could, I, you just made me think about something. That I just feel like I have to comment on right now. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, I'm get emotional, but that's okay. Scott. You know, yay. We're all crying together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the people that, that are dealing with what we deal with, they understand this is hitting the core of our being. Yeah. This is, this is hitting the definition of who we are in life. Yeah. But um, you said something about, you talk to your mom and I've heard you talk in your podcast about this many times. Yeah. You, you have discussions with your mom and how you're angry and you have these discussions and that you talk with your dad and your dad is starting to understand a little bit about that. He was part of the problem and, mm-hmm. and, and the so forth and so on. But let me tell you something from a 67 year old perspective that I really want you to think about. Mm. I really want you to think about this. I had this notion that when my father died, everything would be great. That they're really nasty. He was a nasty person. That when, and not just to his family, but to a lot of people, he was not exactly a very well-loved person. And I have some funny stories I could tell you about his funeral. <laughs> it was one of those few funerals where the, the, uh, the discussion that with the, the, when they talked about him in the funeral, they were kind of honest about it. It was sort of refreshing. But anyway, so when he died, I thought, oh, this is great. He's finally gone. Ah, never have to deal with him again. Even as an adult, he's gone from humanity. But you know, Reed didn't leave my head. Oh, shit. No, 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 no. He did not leave my head at all. In fact, I'm going to tell you something that's sort of paradoxical here. I always all my life thought, I'm going to get him someday for this. I'm going to do something. I'm big and strong now. I'm older than him. I'm not older than him, but I'm big and and I'm not a child anymore. And I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to get back at him for all the nasty things he did to me and to others. But when he's dead, that's gone. There's not even a fantasy of that. So what happens, which is not a healthy way to think, of course, I know that. But it's realistic. You know, I think a lot of people can understand. Yeah, it's real. Of course, it's, and and I never acted on that at all. But it was kind of a thing like someday, someday. Yeah. But when he dies, not only does he still live in your head, but now there's no retribution. You can't, you can't get him back. So it almost makes it, almost makes it worse Mm -hmm. in a way when, when they die. But then part of the reality is you realize that that's where he's been living all along. The, the damage is, the, the problem is in your own head. Not a, Even if he's still alive, it doesn't matter, right? His God, is, I'm yeah. like giving you snaps because <laughs> that is so profound, right? Yes. You know, Pete Walker, I don't know if you've read his work quite yet, but you know, I'm a big fan of his. He talks, he wrote a book called um, from surviving to thriving all about complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which I'm sure you can relate to the symptoms of that too, if you haven't looked into it, but essentially he talks about the concept of the internalized critical inner parent. And what you just described is that right? Because your dad internalized stuff from his dad. And again, and it's like, it's this string of people who are just treating each other like absolute crap. Right. And it's like we internalize those voices. So it's like the the voices that shame us in the day are actually just echoes of that generational trauma. But let me tell you something that my greatest victory Mm. in this by far 
is I feel like I was the only one in my family and maybe in generations where I said, going back to the canary in the coal mine, where I said, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. I'm going to stop it with my child. I am not going to do this to my child. And, and I have to tell you a really heart-rendering moment where that happened. I can remember it's the digital, it's an A-B type decision that I made. And I'm really ashamed to tell you this, but, but in a way I'm not. I, I had a daughter who, when she was two years old, she did, she did something that I didn't like or whatever. So I picked her up by the arm mm. and she was wearing diapers and I gave her a little spanking through her diaper as and she's two as I was doing it and I'm telling you it's as, as sure as I'm sitting here in this chair a light switch went on and I said I am never going to do this ever again ever and I'm going to make it my goal to not do anything like it was done to me that it was done to her and I'm telling you I was true to that was I a perfect father far from it but I never, never physically ever hit her, tried, was trying to buoy her up, you know, with encouraging words, even encouraging facial expressions. A lot of parents don't realize that kids are smart. They read your face. So I was even mindful of my facial expressions. And again, was I perfect? No, I'm sure I slipped. I know I did. Yeah. But I really, and the other thing I did that was insurance for this is my wife who was who had none of this. She she can't relate to any of this. It's so funny. I just don't, you mean you don't under no, I just didn't have any of that. I just can't even relate to that. Isn't it but, weird how when you meet someone who kind of yes. has like a securely attached childhood and they they they're like an alien to you? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a good way to put it. I told her, I said, listen, honey, here's the deal. I need you to watch me. I need you to, I need you to chaperone my parenting. And I want you to tell me if I slip into these habits because I'm not wanting to, they just are. And she's been really great about that. And I don't think I've had too many, I've had too many slips back. Quite the opposite. There's been some times going, that was a little rough on, uh, you know, our daughter there, honey. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The tables have turned. Yeah, a little bit. But, but it gives you the freedom to do that. So I'm very, very, I'm very proud of that. Oh, another cool thing. Mm -hmm. So my daughter is 39. And she knows that I've shared with her some of the suffering that I went through once, once it was age appropriate, once she was older, I mean, even like even in her thirties, I've shared some of this stuff with her. And, uh, he said something to me once it was a killer. She just said that in so many words, she said "Dad, I know what you've been through. And I really appreciate that you made the conscious efforts to stop the chain of events. And do you know what's so cool about that? Do you have any idea how powerful that makes me feel? Makes me feel very powerful. It's like, okay, we swatted this demon down. Now there's some residual stuff going on with me, of course, but I feel like I in great part stopped it with me. And I'm very proud of myself for that. 
And for someone with, with the attributes of BPD, we don't have too many of those moments, do we? We're genuinely proud of our character and something we've done. And we need to celebrate that and embrace it. And I really, wow. I really want to do that. Wow. I'm over here for the, nobody's going to see this because it's not on camera, but I'm like crying. So, because that just to me is so powerful. And like, I really hope that the listeners really absorb this because I get so many messages, Scott. And actually it's so interesting that this has taken like a parenting turn because I, you wouldn't believe, and mostly it's from women because mostly women are the ones preoccupied with like men end up kind of like, I think sometimes being a dad and then it's like, okay, now I'm going to think about being a dad. But I think maybe more, more women are preoccupied with like, you know, can I be a mom? Is it possible for me to get mom? And I get so many messages or maybe it's just quite frankly, because most of the people that end up with BPD diagnoses are women. But regardless, I get a lot of messages from women that ask, should I, is it even okay for me to have kids? Am I going to pass this on to them? Like it's some kind of defect and you sharing that. I hope everyone can take from that is that you can say no. And I love how you said you asked your wife to like chaperone your parenting. That's what a partnership's about, right? It's like saying, Hey, but it's only can work if you trust each other and share the same values and love each other and, and genuinely have each other's back. Because if you don't, then then it can get all kinds of toxic. But hearing your daughter say that, it's like, that's the hero's journey that you've just described, right? It's like, I imagined you as like, you know, a Greek person that's like holding the boulder up, right? And it's like, and you've been like, I did it. Like, I freaking did it, you know? Like, I beat this, this giant. And like, that really is why there are myths of like slaying dragons, right? Or David and Goliath, where it's like the small person like beat the big boss and you beat the big boss <laughs> where where it matters yes it matters. And it's like and no one like that's not seen sometimes as like that should be recognized as probably the most profound achievement it's like you pushed the stop button and some people think that they have to not have kids to push the stop button like as if they have to martyr themselves and say i won't become a parent because this stops with me it can stop with you and you can still be a parent. I, well, I don't view it as being martyred. I view it as, as even further victimization. Yes, that's actually, that's a much better way to put it. I wish yeah. I would have chosen my words better. Yeah. Um, and, and that's such an attribute, I think, of, of borderline attributes is that we we just keep the suffering going. We just keep doing these things to ourselves. And, many, and we're not doing it intentionally. But it's kind of this unconscious, unintentional, just shaming of ourselves and victimizing ourselves. Yes. And and but you can't stop that yeah. until you're aware of it. You have yeah. to have the knowledge to know that this is what I'm doing. And and, you, and then you can work on stopping it. Shame is a big one. I had no idea how giant a feature of BPD that shame is. Because what is shame? Let's think about what shame is. Shame is the voice that keeps telling you you're defective. It's that it's that hourly voice. Yep, you're bad. Yeah, you're not good. You're not. You're a bad person. You're defective, and it's kind of automatic. And it's it's hard to stop it. But I'm yes. not sure that you really stop it. No. It's funny. It's funny in behavior. You can't stop a behavior. You have to replace it. You have to replace it. 
and you replace it with the message is, no, I'm, I am okay. It's No, it's not that I'm not bad. No, no, that's not it. That's not the message is, I'm really okay. I'm really okay. There was a book in the 70s written. It was very popular pop psychology called I'm Okay, You're Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. Are you familiar with it? Okay. No. Now I'm really feeling old. You know, we're really, we're really leveraging the 60s. Hey, I, I read, I read John Bradshaw and that's pretty old school too. Yeah, so. that's good. Yeah, I've read a lot yeah. of stuff. I really so like I'm okay. Well. You're okay is a book that has this, and it's just perfectly applies here. And he says there's multiple types of relationships. You have the I'm not okay and you're not okay. The I'm okay, you're not okay. I'm not okay, but you're okay. And then finally we have the I'm okay and you're okay. That's what we're going for. That's what hey, we're you're want. cool. I don't have to change you. Even if I don't like you, it's okay for you to be you. And I'm okay just like I am. If you like it, fine. If you don't, I'm kind of cool with that because I'll cluster my people around me, which makes me think one other thing. Then I'll I'll stop talking to you for a second. But there's a lady that has written a lot on anxiety. She's been, which we all know is a big component of BPD. Mm-hmm. Her name is Lucinda Bassett. And she and she's sort of like you in a way. She's not really a psychologist or psychiatrist or anything, but she's branched out and done a lot of things. This is from many years ago, decades ago. And she really helped me a lot. But she said, and I love this. I'll never forget this. Here's how you have to approach the world. And it's really applicable to those with, with attributes of BPD. 20% of the population is just not going to like you for whatever reason they first meet you they don't like the color of your hair they don't like the way you stand they don't like the way you talk who knows but they make a flash decision that they're not going to like you and you know what okay that's 20 percent. there's another 20 percent on the flip side that is just going to love you the moment they meet you they meet you and they go that's it's a cool person i just i'm connecting with them I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be very vulnerable and open to them. And we all can relate to that, too. And sometimes we don't even understand it. I don't know why they like me so much, but they do kind of makes me like them. Now, here's the interesting part is the sandwich piece that leaves 60 percent. And you know what that 60 percent is? It's up for grabs. It's up for grabs. 20 percent. Let's just get over that. 20 percent aren't going to like you. Stop wasting your time and expect it. Yes, it's not going to happen. That's called wisdom. That's called maturity. 20% are going to like you. Hey, go ahead and enjoy that and see where the other 60% toss up. That is such a wonderful perspective to live your life, isn't it? I freaking love that. And, you know, there is a saying, you know, they're saying like, if you are for everyone, you'll be, if you try to be for everyone, you'll be for no one. Correct. If you think about it, no offense to somebody who's just kind of like, okay, whatever you want to do. Ah. And they kind of come across like even people who've never had any suffering in their life. You can kind of just tell when somebody's a little bit like bland and going with the flow and not really like saying who they are. And those people may not be hated, but they're not going to really be remembered either. So it's like, why not just be your whole self? And if you repel the hell out of some people, I mean, then you're going to attract like a magnet, all the people that are in your tribe, you know? Yes. And I have to tell you something. Now, listen to me on this one. (laughs) I have 67 years of experience. Listen to me on this one. When you're yourself, it's easier. It's much easier. Yes. You have energy for other things. 
It's yes. much easier. And Scott, and you said that you were, everything was a conscious effort. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but it yeah, reminded no. me of something you said earlier. You said everything felt like a conscious effort and think about it because you were constantly trying to be like, is this how I should be? Is yes. how it, can I do this? And you'll like me. But then when you stop giving a F, then you <laughs> literally can just go, it's in your, you're in your flow. You're no longer observing everything you're doing and right. You're just flowing and then you're not worrying. Yes. No, you, you, you perfectly tied it back into what I said earlier. That is exactly yeah. right. Is that I'm just allowing myself just to, when I want to say something to somebody, I, I just kind of say it and I don't really worry about it so much. Of course you have, you have guardrails. You don't say things that are overtly offensive and that kind of stuff or inappropriate, but out, but inside of those guardrails, just be you and go with it. You you said something earlier about being unique and 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 how if you just try to be like everyone else, um, how boring it is. And it made me think of two quick things that just, just that resonates with me so completely. Dale Carnegie, another old guy who wrote a lot about you know are you familiar with Dale Carnegie? Okay, good, you are. Uh, he has a saying that I will never forget. It's one of my main things that I, that I remember in my life. And it says this, this is really powerful. You ready? Here we go. If you want to be like everyone else, do what they're doing. Yeah. Isn't that profound? Isn't yes. that <laughs> it's also yeah. reminds me of why, you know, so many people seek advice. Like they tell their friends and at, seek relationship advice from their friends who haven't even had like a, a strong relationship for two years. Right. So it's just like, and then it, what you just shared too reminded me of something else you said, which is like your your amazing psychologist said that you know your dad was just your biological father. And Pete Walker also talks about finding your own spiritual mentors and your own mentors. These can be people from books. They don't have to be psychologists, but some of them can be. But you clearly sought out people that helped you reparent yourself, and that came in the form of authors and you know these speakers along the way. And I believe we are intuitively guided to those right places if we find them, you know, and I think it's really beautiful because you've reparented yourself and become your own good parent by and good enough. Cause I also like the phrase good enough parent. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. There's no such thing as a, you know, but a, a mental health providers often say a good enough parent will do this. And you have done that through like your own efforts. It's pretty amazing. I really appreciate that. And I really love that concept, by the way, of good enough. Yes. That took me a long time to come through. And my my little mantra is I'm good enough. Yeah. I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Yeah. It, it takes the pressure off of you. You don't have to be perfect. Just no. be good enough. Because that's all people are looking for. Hey, he's He's good enough. And you know what else is kind of funny? It's kind of a part of that. This is so funny. Mm. It's called the 2040. I've got another one here for you. It's called the 2040-60 rule that fits in perfectly to what we're talking about. So thinking about being good enough and people's perceptions of you. So a person that's 20 years old worries about what people think about. Mm. A person then they age to 40 and they realize that eh, people weren't really paying any attention. Uh, people really aren't, uh, they don't care what, pe what people think anymore. Okay, so 20-year-old says, I'm worried about what people think. A 40-year-old says, 
I'm not worried about that anymore. I don't, I don't care what people think. And then the 60 year old says, they weren't thinking about me all along. People aren't paying attention to you. They don't care. That's exactly, they don't care. That is exactly right. Scott, you know, Melanie, right? My, my good friend, Melanie, do you follow her on Instagram? She's like mind not. over Melanie. I'm old. I don't look at the Instagram okay. too much. <laughs> well, okay. Um, I wasn't quite sure if you follow, like, you know, if you find people on BPD, but a really good friend of mine, you know, and I just had a discussion about this because we were talking about, you know, how overwhelming our Instagram DMs can be sometimes because people will reach out. She's an advocate as well. And so sometimes people, people will DM her asking her for help. And recently we've both kind of like been talking about the concept of turning off your DMs, blah, blah, blah. That's neither here nor there. But the question is both of us were struggling going like, should we turn them off? Like, what if people need us? And I, me and her just both said, nobody actually cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares if our, if they can reach out. And if they, and if they do, it'll be for such a brief moment. And then they'll find something else to worry about. Nobody's really worrying about you. Right. Like as much as you think they are. Correct. And what a waste of energy. Yes. What a waste of energy. Yes. It's so true. Well, now look, I hope you, how are you doing for time? Can we chat for a little longer? Okay, good. Because I want to take this now that we have a deep understanding of who you are and where you come from. Like, I want to spend a tiny brief moment talking about, you know, the the elephant in the room, but it's not really an elephant in the room. Part of the reason why, you know, you first voicemailed me in the first place was saying, you know, no men with BPD are talking about this or like, where are the perspectives of men with BPD? And I hope that having you on what I love is like, it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the gender. It doesn't matter anything. No. It's like nope. our the the diagnosis itself is quite sexist because quite often, like a lot of people are Women who are seen as like hysterical and emotional are given BPD stereotypically, but like your psychologist is a clearly, I wish that I could clone him for other people. But then a lot of times men um, will just be given like depression or they'll be given if they're violently acting out, which it sounds like that's not really what you were doing. You know, they're violently acting out. And a lot of times these men end up in the prison system, right? And uh, they're not given the treatment that they need. And instead of being given a BPD diagnosis, they're given something like antisocial personality disorder or something, right? Where often, whereas often a woman and a man could be acting the exact same and the man will walk away with antisocial or narcissistic personality disorder. And the woman will be walk away with BPD diagnosis. So what I guess I wanted to ask you, Scott, is after listening to all my podcasts, being in therapy, and also when you first kind of were looking into this stuff, what are your reflections now on, you know, just men and BPD? And do you have any words out there for for men who might be identifying with these traits and find this episode? I know that's a really wide, but I'd just love to yeah. give you the floor to talk about that piece. What well, what you said about men and women is really true. I I think again, of course, I'm no psychologist, but I think the way that it manifests in men and women is the same. Everything that you've been talking about through all of your podcasts uh, is completely relatable to me. Yep, and except for the period. 
You're in your voicemail. That was the part that made me laugh so hard in your voicemail. As you said, I can relate to everything, Molly, except for maybe the period episode. I I loved that. It was great. But it uh, it does. It manifests to me. It manifests itself exactly the same in men and and, and women. And you're so right about that. I I I think about you think about it. So if you have the crazy girlfriend who takes the guy's clothes and throws them out in the street and burns them, she's going to be la- labeled as borderline personality disorder, hysterical, crazy exactly. girl, you know. Yep. Whatever. So if you had a guy do the same thing, which does happen. So you have the guy who takes the women's clothes, throws them out in the street and burns them up and stuff. He's either going to be arrested and thrown in prison or he's going to be get psychiatric care because he is he has generalized anxiety and depressive orders, disorders. Yeah. So that's how that goes. So we're way off the mark on that. And I think there's been a profound amount of suffering in men because men don't know that I was 67. I was 65 at the time. I was 65 when I finally went ding, ding, ding. I know what I have here. Yeah. And there's a lot of men that don't know they have this because it's just not talked about. It's just as if it's exclusive to women. And it absolutely is not. And think about the pressure that my father must have gone under back in the 30s or something. There would yeah. have been no way they would have been, been able to address that or even his father. Yeah. So. So bringing awareness to this to men is going to be a thing. And that's just general to, true, generally true in the, in the uh, psychiatric area in general or in psychology is men just don't get help. Men don't get help. And you can really see that in the suicide rates. There's a reason the suicide rates are higher because men are not getting help. Yes. And I just wonder how many men are suffering because they don't know what they have. They just struggle with this every day because mm-hmm. they don't know what they have. And part of me being me is throwing off some of that male thing, the, you know, the old toxic male thing, which I kind of don't like that term, but, but we all know what that means. Yes. I kind of had to throw that out and kind of embrace my inner feminine and say, I don't care yes. if this is a male thing or this whatever. I'm just going to go get help. And uh, and it's ironically the most like the most strong masculine, you know, if they say those cheesy things, divine masculine, right? It's like there's a shadow side to everything. And it's just like actually saying I need help is the most powerful thing someone could do. It really is. And I'm proud of myself for that. And if you observe men, the men that, oh, (laughs) The men that I respect the most in life are the ones that are just so willing to show those weak areas, what they perceive as weak areas and their vulnerabilities. But, but you're right. The paradox is that takes strength. I'm so strong. I don't care if you see some dents and dings. I don't care. Yes. I don't care. And that is powerful. And that's a paradox. It really is. It is because it's, it's, Because what it does is it opens you up, right? And so then people have the power to hurt you. And so that's why people that haven't done the work, if you open yourself up, you're actually not, you feel like, oh, someone's going to be able to hurt me. But if you just say that, it's almost like you're saying, I'm putting down my weapons, like I'm ready to, this is rock bottom. You know, it's, it's why I really 
resonate with, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous stuff, even though I'm not an alcoholic myself. I worked in a rehab for a bit and I got to go to a lot of AA meetings and just that kind of like, hi, I'm an alcoholic. I don't quite like the I am an alcoholic part because it's the same reason why I don't like the I have BPD. But it's just like, I'm just saying like, here's all my shame, right? And you're just like sitting in a room and people are just being like, yeah, we're still here, you know, like, and, right. and just saying, I'm re- I'm ready. I'm at rock bottom. I know it can't get any worse than this. And I'm ready to just like, put it all down. Like, you know, <laughs> and I'm putting it all down. <laughs> I'm laughing because I think about my experience in counseling. <laughs> this is so funny. I dropped these quote unquote bombshells to my, I mean, I go for months. I go, okay, I'm willing to tell the psychologist this. So I dropped this bombshell on him. And I, I go, gee, Dr. Gorto, blah, 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 blah. And he looks at me and goes, okay. And so it's, I go, hold it. You're supposed to run out of the room. And he goes, what, you think you're the first person that ever told me that? You think that 90% of the population didn't deal with this? In fact, I remember yeah. him saying that once. I said, hey, I feel this and this and this as a man. And he said, he just looks at me real quiet. He just goes, really? Scott. 90% of the men that come in here say the same thing. Next. Wow. Yeah. Like let go of that. Wow. Let go of that. And you're that, hiding look, things that don't need to be hidden. He's being a mirror for you, right? Like yes. it's just like, he's being like seeing I'm not shocked in someone that you respect. Cause that's yes. why the therapeutic relationship is so important, right? Yes. Because you have to trust him and respect him first. And then when he says that stuff, you're like, Oh, he's not rejecting me because of that. You know, like, Oh, I'm, I'm not so weird. And that's why podcasts like mine and thousands of other things similar to mine of people just sharing their stories are so healing for people because people are like, Oh, I do that. Maybe, maybe. And I've been thinking something is so wrong with me. And so maybe now nothing's wrong. Like, so you sharing this, I already know like the ripple effect that you sharing everything that you shared today is going to be so wide, you know, because it really helps like alchemize that shame from people if they feel like they hear it and it's a person that's just like them and they're going, you don't have to be ashamed of it. Yeah, so that, powerful. Is so, that is so healing what you just said. It's so true. Mm. It's, you know, it, the ripple effects will be there. Every time I have a guest on, I get so, and I always forward the emails that I get. So by the way, anyone who's listening to this, if you would like to send a voicemail um, about this episode or any other episode, I'd love to play it so that we can like hear people reflecting or sharing on anything that they've heard. And I'll make sure to forward you anything that I, I get from it, Scott, so that you can Thanks. hear it. So please do share everyone because it's really brave what Scott's doing. Like it's not easy to come out and just, he's not a podcaster. You're not trying to build your following anywhere. You're just sharing your story. And I think it's really beautiful. Appreciate it. And yeah, it's been great talking to you. And and I just have to say that the persona that I'm seeing today is perfectly in, in synchron. It's perfectly congruent and synchronous with your podcast. And that's uh-huh. really validating to me and should be validating to you as well. It is incredibly validating, really. Like those are the kinds of things that really mean a lot to me because as you know, I spent much of my life with masks on. And so now to be able to just like 
sit with people who never have met me before, but they've heard hours of me talking. And then when they meet me, they say, these are the same, right? Because like for so long, and I think that's a beautiful message of healing too. You can say the same, I'm sure, because you've already said it. It's like we're one person in our minds and then we're another person out to everyone else. And it's that feeling of like, there's no cohesion. You said that word before. And to have that, like how freeing is it for us? We're just being us, you know? And like, it's very cleansing. It is. It is like a weight coming off your shoulders. It really does. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask you about one last thing and I hope you're still doing for time. This is just going to be a little longer of one, but I just am so into this conversation. I want to tie up with just sharing briefly because I feel like I need to have you back on the podcast again, if you're open to it, because I would love to do a whole other episode on your work with animals, because I really think that that's a whole other episode now that we've talked, right? Like, because so for those of you, please look forward to hearing Scott back on um, the podcast again, because I do want to do an episode where we talk to him about what he's learned from uh, working with uh, quote unquote bad animals that are maybe going to be given away, or it's like they're, they're at their rock bottom where their family might be ready to say, Hey, this, this dog is too damaged. And you have been able to uh, turn your life into almost doing for animals, what you didn't have done for you. You know, that's, that's really a lot of truth to that. Yes. And it's beautiful. And so I just want to leave the listeners with just what are some of the things that you've learned just to give them a teaser for the next episode? What would you say you've learned from working with these abused or, you know, uh, quote unquote, bad dogs? Because I think a lot of us feel like bad dogs. Yeah, well, you know, that's true, too. And that's that's kind of the shame part. That's kind yeah. of the shame part. So the, the thing, I, I really would like to point to one thing. And mm. this is so interesting because in my work, I'm dealing with these really troubled dogs and their families. And because of the way that I work, this is, I become very intimate with the families as well. Typically, when we have a session, I meet with people four to five sessions and when we meet, uh, free, very often it's the family that comes with the dog because this is kind mm-hmm. of a family issue. And there's a lot of family dynamics there. And, and it really, let me put it this way, I go through a lot of boxes of Kleenexes. So a lot of very sad situations. Mm-hmm. And I'll, believe me, I could, maybe I can relate someone in, a, in a, some, uh, some examples in a future episode, but some of these just tear your heart out. And mm-hmm. it's really good that I'm, I'm an older guy because I've, I've had a family and I've lived my life and I can understand these family dynamics a little bit better. But here's the thing that I've learned. Oh my, one thing in particular, mm-hmm. oh my, <laughs> is this. After working with thousands of dogs and there are thousands of families, I know this truth. And that is fear and anxiety drive this world and they drive humans behavior and they drive canine and animal behavior it is absolutely amazing i'll have a conversation right the first session is called an assessment session where i assess and diagnose the dog what the problems are and so forth and i'm i'm whiteboarding and i'm talking about all the issues and i'll stop i do this all the time and i'll go 
your dog has like four major issues here. They're really dysfunctional and blah, blah, blah. And I said, what? I say, what's at the core of all of these? And there's a silence in the room. And they look at me and they go, fear? I go, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fear is driving all these behaviors. And so, mm-hmm. and what I've learned is true for humans too. Fear is, is a thing. It is a thing. Well, I'll tell you what, we are absolutely doing an episode on that because I think that many of us who are highly sensitive, emotional people, we have so much love to give. And I know that the, most of the people that I know that identify with BBD happen to have pets, you know, and I myself have transferred a lot of my own anxiety into my own dog. And I can see that now. And it's interesting because obviously animals are not as developed on a conscious level as we are. And so it's like, I've developed this further sense of self-awareness and I'm starting to heal. And I can see that along with me, my dog's healed a little bit, but I can see the echoes of what she's been through. You know, she's, she was there when I got the crap beat out of me by a partner, you know, and I can't imagine that that didn't leave a lasting impact on her. You know what I mean? And so it's just, we, we can see our, our animals feel it, you know, like our animals feel it. And as we heal, I really believe that our animals can find some peace too, because the thing that can, the connective tissue to all of this too, brings back that canary in the coal mine. Like what we were as kids were, we didn't go along with the system. So everybody in an environment, including our animals, including kids, it's like we assume a role so that equilibrium can be met felt. Have you ever heard of the mobile theory, like a children's mobile, like above a crib? If you, yeah, if you touch the mobile one piece, the whole thing goes right. And so equilibrium can only be held if everybody keeps their role. And so quite often the canary in the coal mine child, the scapegoat often is the one who is the moving mobile piece, right? And oftentimes, just like any great movement in history, there has to be a canary in a coal mine. And so it's like, if there's anyone listening to this and you resonate with that, maybe you are that canary in the coal mine, right? But unfortunately, now we are adults. And so now we have to be our own good parent. And I think that Scott, you have demonstrated what that looks like so beautifully in this episode. Well, I, I really appreciate your comments and I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Not ditto, disappoint. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, we will be doing that other episode 100%. And can I ask you to two things? One, how can people find you? Are you welcomed to be contacted? And that's okay if not. Or how can people reach out if they sure. if you want? If they if they want, I can be reached at usadogbehavior.com. Fantastic. That's so good, Scott. Well, and do you have any final words for the listeners that you'd like to leave them with? Anything that especially speaking to anyone who might be particularly struggling right now and maybe it was like you where they got told that maybe they show display some of these traits and specifically maybe speaking to men out there, but it can be pretty universal. What would you say to that person? I, w- I would just, as a closing comment, I would just say that BPD and the trace of BPD, this, this is not in your DT, DNA. This is not a biological function that is systemically in you and can never be addressed. It's just something you, you, that you have to live with. 
It is a thing. It is a thing. It's thoughts you have and you can do something about it, but it is a bit of a battle. But what in life that's worth, what in life that's of any value doesn't have a little battle associated with it, but it's a battle. You've got to get in there. You've got to start fighting and you've got to start doing it. And there is relief. It's not overnight, but there is relief and seek help. You are not yes. alone. Don't believe that. Don't believe that that boogeyman in the closet that says, oh, you're the only one that has this. No, you're not. There are millions. Millions. And you know, I think that everybody in the world probably at some point in their life has displayed some BPD traits. You know, it's just BPD encompasses psychological human suffering so well. People just maybe manifest those traits a little bit differently, but it's so universal. And you said something beautiful this isn't a thing you have. Everyone's on their hero's journey. And what great myth is like the hero woke up and had a great life and went to bed the end. No, they go out and they have battles man. right. They go out and they, they have a mission that they, they need to get something right. Collect something and they need to fight the battles along the way. And only then can they come home and share with other people, what they learned, right? And they can become a wise elder, which you call yourself old, but I would like to reframe that at least is like, you are a very wise elder, you know, like you are a wise person who is sharing that wisdom that you've gained. And it's people like you are so important, you know, and this has been helpful for me very much. Well, excellent. I didn't think I'd ever be in a position to help you, but that's that's good to hear. You know, I'm just a human being. I say we're all messy, emotional human beings. You know, I I cry yes. probably like six times a week. I freak out like six times a week. My partner has to be calming me down. And I feel like now I have, I feel like I need to have you on for three episodes because what I also didn't get to ask you about was marriage and partnership and how you've been able, because again, if you've proven one, uh, two things, in this episode is damn right. You can be an amazing parent, a good enough parent when you've experienced this stuff. And two, you can have a long a lasting, fulfilling relationship. So it's just don't, and you can get help. You're not broken, right? All of these things are lies. And it's also something that we tell ourselves because it's a lot easier to be cozy and just be like, I'm screwed, you know, because if you believe, if you believe the opposite, it means you have to go on the journey. You know, no, you're right about that. It's it's easy just to sit down. It is. It's hard to well, stand up and walk somewhere. Certainly is. Well, thank you, Scott, for helping. I'm sure that this episode is going to help somebody get up and start walking. I believe it. Hope so. Hope so. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Isn't Scott such a joy? I'm so happy that I got to share that conversation with you. I can't tell you how many times I cried while speaking to him. It was a beautiful, beautiful exchange. As we discussed at the end of the interview, I have included Scott's website in the episode description, so feel free to check that out if you'd like to learn more or reach out to Scott. Also, please, if you would like to send a voicemail in response to anything shared please go ahead and go to Back From The Borderline and send a voicemail if you'd like me to play some of your reflections on this episode. If you think it could help someone else, share it with a friend, rate the podcast or leave a review on Apple Podcast. All of those things really help what I'm doing here. 
Also, for those of you who would like more back from the borderline, consider becoming a premium submarine. My premium subscribers gain incredible bonuses and a different level of access to the podcast and join the inner circle. So if you're interested in learning more, go ahead and visit backfromtheborderline.com or click the link at the bottom of the episode description. So I'm sending all of my love from my heart to yours. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you right back here next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.